Well, as always, it is an enormous privilege as well as responsibility, not to mention a great joy of my heart to be able to come before you and open up the Word of God this morning. And what a joy it is to serve the Lord. Amen. He has been so good to all of us that know Him as Savior And every day as we serve the Lord together, it is an adventure. It's an exciting adventure to watch what He will do in our lives, in and through us. And certainly our desire this morning is to honor Him, especially as we come now to the pinnacle of a worship service. And my goal is to, shall we say, ravish your affections with the glory of of God, the irresistible displays of His glory. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, I don't come to preach myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So I come before you again to proclaim the excellencies and the glories of Christ. And certainly, as Paul said, the very essence of preaching is to help you see the light of of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so this morning we find ourselves in our study of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20 through 28. And I'll read that for you in a moment, but I want to preface our examination of the Word with a few thoughts to help us understand the issues that I believe are at stake not only in this text, but also in our culture. As you may have noticed in the bulletin, I've entitled this sermon, The Neo-Evangelical Cult of Selfism. And that's what we are going to see today. We are going to learn of the dangers of self-worship, especially in Christian churches that are ostensibly, at least on paper, Christian churches that claim to love God and worship the Lord Jesus, but I fear that if we examine them more closely, we witness something very different, a phenomena that I would like to call the neo-evangelical cult of self-ism. All around the United States, in many parts of the world, we see masses of people crowding into seeker-sensitive church buildings, crowding into stadiums, crowding into theaters, And they're all coming with one ultimate purpose, and that is to somehow learn how to cash in on God with a deliberate determination to avoid any mention of the holiness of God, of sin, of man's moral bankruptcy, of the issue of repentance, uh, without any mention of, uh, of, of the need for Christ to suffer for our sins. Very often, theologically illiterate entrepreneurs that are disguised as pastors, are attracting huge masses of people by widening the gate of the gospel to include anyone who whispers a prayer like, Jesus, I accept you, and so on. And as they promise everything from a purpose-driven life filled with happiness and success to a God that's going to grant you personal miracles, The second member of the triune Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, is being systematically dethroned and blasphemously demoted from sovereign king to nothing more than a cosmic genie that we must 
learn how to properly stroke so that he will perform a personal miracle for us. And as you study the services in many of these so-called churches, as I have done rigorously over the past few years, you will see that typically after about 45 minutes of mesmerizing, typically rock and worldly music designed to somehow make seekers feel comfortable and also designed to stir the emotions to give a counterfeit sense of worship and more importantly, designed to alter one's state of consciousness so that emotions now bypass critical thinking and set people up for deception. Pastors then will preach a short kind of feel-good message designed to convince people of just how special they are in God's eyes and how they're missing out on so many blessings that He wants to give them. And the emphasis is always on, on man and his needs, never God and His glory. It's always on temporal, earthly, physical blessing, never eternal, heavenly, and spiritual blessings. This is the cult of selfism that we see running rampant today. And certainly the fads and gurus come and go. Currently, probably the most dangerous ones and the most subtle ones are the ones of the purpose-driven life or your best life now. And I've critiqued the purpose-driven life much in the past. But we even know of a few that were a couple of years earlier, the prayer of Jabez. Remember when that was out? And there, if you read uh, on, the, on the book, you see that they advertised, discover how to release the miraculous power of God in your life by learning to pray this prayer. So once again, the focus is on learning how to somehow manipulate God to do something for me. Because after all, at the very core of what I believe, I am at the center of the universe here. God exists for me. It's not that I exist for Him. Another author, or I should say the author of the prayer of Jabez, says uh, for those who learn uh, to pray this prayer, that miracles, quote, are happening on a regular basis. Uh, breakthrough to the life you were meant to live. And so again, the assumption... And I'm not just talking about that particular book and that particular movement, but in most all of these movements, there's the, there's the assumption that somehow God is limited by man, but that if you really want to, you can learn how to manipulate God to meet your needs. Because after all, He is ignorant or at best indifferent to your needs. And so goes the neo-evangelical cult of selfism. Without question the most dominant and successful of the of these purveyors of the gospel of self-fulfillment, the gospel of self-indulgent, are those that are part of the word of faith movement, predominantly found in the extreme ends of the charismatic and Pentecostal church. I've talked about word of faith teachers a bit before. Let me give you a, a, a bit of a summary, because again, all of this I think is so helpful as we look at the text that we're going to come to this morning. Word of faith teachers uh, are, are summarized very well by the Christian Research Institute. Let me just read you what they say. Here's what the word of faith teachers uh, believe. By the way, these are people like like Rod Parsley, Benny Hinn, um, uh, the Crouches on TBN, uh, Marilyn Hickey, um, 
Joyce Myers, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, these types of people, and the list goes on. But here's, in essence, what they believe, according to the Christian Research Institute, and I found this to be a good summary, and I quote, For them, God created man in, quote, God's class as, quote, little gods with the potential to exercise what they refer to as the, quote, God kind of faith in calling things into existence and living in prosperity and success as sovereign beings. Of course, we forfeited this opportunity by rebelling against God in the garden and taking upon ourselves Satan's nature. To correct this situation, Jesus Christ became a man, died spiritually, thus taking upon himself Satan's nature, went to hell and was born again, rose from the dead with God's nature again, and then sent the Holy Spirit to, so that the incarnation could be duplicated in believers, thus fulfilling their calling to be what they call, quote, little gods. By the way, I've got to stop. Folks, this is so blasphemous. I shudder to even read it to you, but I want you to understand what's at the core of what is being taught that is attracting literally millions of people. They go on to say that the word of faith teachers believe that since we're called to experience this kind of life now, we should be successful in virtually every area of our lives. To be in debt then, or be sick, or, parens, as even taught by the faith teachers, to be left by one's spouse, simply means that you don't have enough faith. Or you have some secret sin in your life. Because if you didn't, you would be able to handle all of these problems, end quote. Well, certainly all of this is easily to refute biblically. But generations of deception, where people have not been taught Bible doctrine and therefore are ignorant of what the Scriptures teach, would cause them to become easy prey to such lies. And before long, people rely on mysticism, which is this notion that somehow truth can be determined intuitively and verified by experience, and thus we have staggering lack of discernment. While much of their man-centered theology is cleverly disguised in homespun humor and ridiculous and unsubstantiated claims of miraculous experiences. Nevertheless, I would submit to you that their blatantly blasphemous doctrines and presuppositions pervade all that they do. And like all good counterfeits, they appeal to the lust of men's hearts. And they certainly promise to satisfy fleshly appetites under the guise of spirituality, And, of course, the great defect in the human heart, as we study it biblically, is that we have a proclivity or a negative tendency to worship ourselves rather than God. Naturally, any religious guru that offers a way for these passions to be satisfied has enormous appeal. Thus, the cult of selfism, as I would call it. Word of faith teacher Joel Osteen who is the pastor of now what is claimed to be the largest congregation in the United States, which is Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, about 30,000 regular attenders. He has on his web, Joel Osteen Ministries, and in this quote, discover the champion in you. Need I say more? Discover the champion in you. The website goes on to say, although we are the largest and fastest growing congregation in America, we are committed like never before to 
meeting the needs of the individual. Goes on to say, giving hope, restoring relationships, and helping you fulfill your God-given destiny. Come and worship with us as we experience the presence of God, presence of God in a real and exciting way. His book, Your Best Life Now, which is now on the number one bestseller list with the New York Times, is one that helps us understand even more of the danger of all of this. By the way, can I stop for a second? Remember, the Lord says there there is a narrow gate and a wide gate. There's going to be the few and the many folks. Anytime you see masses of people running to any kind of a religious movement, rest assured that there is an extremely high probability that that is the wide gate, the broad way that's leading to destruction. But in in this book, Your Best Life Now, the one um, reviewer says, and I quote, Your Best Life Now contains seven steps to living at your full potential. First, you need to enlarge your vision for your life. Until you begin to dream God-sized dreams, you will never live your life at its full potential. Secondly, you need to develop a healthy self-image. Joel Osteen preaches often on not living under the terrible cloud of condemnation. Until we see ourselves as we are, we will never live our best life now. Thirdly, Joel talks about discovering the power of your thoughts and words. He states that if we continue to think and talk negative, we will not live life at our full potential. By the way, let, let me let me stop again. This is important. You see, word of faith teachers believe, and, and this is what one has said, and I quote, God is not sovereign. He needs permission to act. All right. And so what we have to do is learn how to use our words to call things into into existence, to release the force of faith. This is the idea of naming it and claiming it, as you've heard. One teacher goes on to say, we control Jesus with our mouth. Faith is a force. Kenneth Copeland says in his book, The Force of Faith, and I quote, faith is a power force. It is a tangible force. It is a conductive force. He goes on to say that words activate the force. The force of faith is released by words. Faith filled words put the law of the spirit of life into operation, end quote. And on it goes. So, again, Joel Osteen would go along with that. And he wants us to understand how we need to discover the power of your thoughts and words and so on. The fourth aspect of his book in your best life now, according to the critic, is this. Fourth, we need to let go of the past. If we don't dwell in the past, we will never focus and press into the into the best life available to us. Uh, next, we need to learn how to find strength through adversity. Everyone will experience difficulties, but learning how to capitalize from these traits will help you live your best life now. And sixthly, we need to live to give. Of course, you'll never guess where you should give. God commands us to be generous. And Pastor Joel explains how doing this helps you to fulfill your potential. Lastly, Joel teaches that we need to choose to be happy. Everyone experiences circumstances that can depress them. But if you want to experience your best life now, you must choose to rejoice and thank God for all the blessings he has bestowed upon you. So goes the critique of another number one bestseller. Folks, the neo-evangelical cult of selfism is running rampant. And of course, this is just one of many, I believe, satanically inspired religious movements that are that's deceiving the masses with a counterfeit gospel of Jesus and turning it into a man-centered gospel. And however, as ludicrous as it may be, these things are attracting millions of people 
simply because what is being taught is irresistible to people's rabid commitment to self-aggrandizement, to self-love, to self-fulfillment, to self-indulgence, to self-satisfaction, to self-reliance, to self-promotion. This is the wide gate that leads to destruction as opposed to what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, the narrow way of self-denial and self-sacrifice where he says there will be few that will find it. And that's why in Matthew 7.15 he says, Thus beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, pastors, or I should say wolves, dressed up like shepherds, like pastors. Well, this morning we examine this spiritual defect that we all have. We're all guilty here, folks. We all struggle with pride, with self-love. We all see ourselves more highly than we ought. And we even see this obsession with self in the lives of the disciples. They faced it. They had to deal with it as we all do. With that in mind, now we go to our text this morning in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Folks, it is amazing if we study this text, we see that in the preceding verses that we studied last week, verses 18 and 19, Jesus has just finished his third and final prediction of his imminent suffering and death and resurrection. And what's interesting to me is that there's no indication, even in the other Gospels, that the disciples responded to what he said in any way. There was no response like, Jesus, help us understand this incomprehensible statement. Our, our hearts are absolutely breaking. What a horrific thing to say. What, what are you talking? Help us to understand this. What are we supposed to do? Nothing like that. No, they're too, too preoccupied with self. They're too preoccupied with this constant obsession with who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. By the way, we read of the same type of a scenario in Mark 9. You will recall there even Jesus foretold of his death 
And what was their response? Nothing. They just continued to bicker over their rank and status in the kingdom. By the way, this same type of bickering is going to occur right after the Last Supper, right before the Lord is crucified. This is a problem, a big problem with the disciples and with me and with you. Things haven't changed much. As I think about it, the greatest event in the history of the world, the apex of redemptive history, which is the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is really of no real consequence to people these days. Because after all, what matters in this whole thing called Christianity is me. What's in this deal for me? I mean, folks, do you really think that the masses of seekers that are filling up these so-called churches and stadiums and purchasing millions of books, do you really think they are longing in their heart to hear the glorious message of forgiveness of God's mercy and His grace on sinners through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course not. That's too offensive. Frankly, that's a bit bizarre. And maybe a little over the top, melodramatic. But rather, they're saying this, Okay, I'm here. Where do I sign up? Where do I cash in on what I deserve? Where do I sign up for these celestial goodies? Because after all, I want to have more success in my life. I want to have more money. I want to have peace of mind. I want to have a purpose-driven life. I want to have a better marriage. I want a more fulfilling life. They're not saying, I want forgiveness of sin. I want to be reconciled to a holy God because I am a sinful man. I want to find mercy and grace and love and fellowship and joy forevermore in the presence of His glory. That's not what people are thinking. Because that's certainly not what is presented when they come. Because if that were the case, those churches would be about the size of ours. So, the disciples now ignore Jesus' solemn prediction. And James and John, the sons of thunder, enlist mommy to help manipulate Jesus to achieve the highest rank in the kingdom. By the way, parenthetically, I find it interesting that they didn't just name it and claim it that they didn't have some positive confession here, that they didn't somehow release some force of faith through their words. Why didn't they do that? Or they should have perhaps repeated the prayer of Jabez over and over again and the Lord would have automatically enlarged their boundaries. <laughs> but here, dear friends, in this text, we're going to see three dominant attitudes in our proclivity, which is a negative tendency, to self-worship. We're going to see the progression of three destructive propensities in our hearts that will cause us to go astray and upon which false teachers love to pray. First of all, we're going to see self-love. And we're going to see that that leads to number two, self-promotion, which ends in number three, self-deception. And then finally, number four, we're going to see God's admonition to self-sacrifice. First of all, self-love. I see this implied in the text because after all, the disciples now have an exaggerated perception 
of their personal value. And that is the source of all of their conniving. That's what's motivating them here. It's pride that's motivating them. Remember now, again, this battle over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom has been ongoing since they left Galilee and went to Capernaum. And now here they are on their way to Jerusalem. You see, James and John are dealing with what we all deal with, and that is conceit, you know, uh, arrogance. It's spreading like a brush fire. And perhaps it's being fueled even by their special place of privilege, because after all, they knew that Peter along with James and John, were kind of the inner circle with the Lord. Boy, it's easy to think you're the elite when you're in the inner circle, right? And it's interesting that somehow now they're cutting Peter out, who was kind of the lead man. He's going to uh, be cut out here, and they're going to exalt themselves over all the other disciples, and even exalt themselves over every other saint that has ever lived. You see, their hearts are not focused on serving the Lord, but scheming on how to get him to honor them. Because now success is more important than sacrifice. And this kind of pride, dear friends, has always been a hallmark of human depravity. First John 2.16, we read of the boastful pride of life. Now that it is not from the Father, but is from the world. And yet again, folks, I would submit to you that this is the cornerstone of seeker-sensitive theology. To learn how to appeal to the consumer. Appeal to what? Appeal to their sense of self-love. And jettisons anything that he finds offensive. And so evangelism becomes nothing more than a marketing problem. And therefore, it's going to be resolved by marketing firms. Not by theologians. Not by the Bible. Most notably, we see that theology, according to Robert Schuller, must be, quote, man-centered, not God-centered. Well, there it is in a nutshell. And, of course, his most famous disciples, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, have picked up on that. And we see this type of blasphemous theology permeating all that is going on in this movement But Jesus preached just the opposite. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew 5. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit meaning those who recognize their utter moral depravity. To realize that they are absolutely destitute before a holy God. That they are bankrupt. And therefore they come to God crying out for mercy that is undeserved. Those are the ones that he blesses. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, the idea of mourning over their sin, for they shall be comforted. You see, folks, Jesus always appealed to a guilty conscience, a guilty conscience that every sinner has. Every sinner knows that he is guilty before a holy God. Scripture has made that abundantly clear in Romans 1 and many other texts. The Lord never appealed to their sense of self-love with an insatiable appetite for more pleasure. Well, inevitably, self-love will lead to, number two, self-promotion. Notice verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons bowing down and making a request of him. Now, obviously, her, I should say, the boys put her up to this. It's interesting, in Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't even mention the mother. Boy, pride has no shame, right? 
Self-love has no shame. Uh, it, it, it knows it has no limits. I mean, we will do anything to find satisfaction. Don't you know, they're, they're probably they, they've been thinking something like this. Boy, all this bickering over who's going to be first. We know that we've been in the inner circle. I mean, James, you, you, you know how the Lord loves us. I, you know, really, in all honesty, I, I think we need to be at his right and his left hand. We're the ones that want to glorify him more than anybody else. I'll tell you what let's do. Why don't we, we, we corner Jesus? Let's get mom to soften him up a bit. Why don't we um, come before him and bow down? Boy, that's a nice touch because after all, he is the king. And kings love to grant wishes. And let's ask him if he will do us a favor. And perhaps we can even ask him to do that before he knows what it is. So he'll commit to it and kind of be obligated to do it. I mean, folks, all of this betrays that they knew what they were doing was wrong. But self-love eclipses all sense of virtue. Certainly, there's no lack of self-esteem here. There's no humility either. All we have is a fanatical determination to somehow manipulate God, to treat us special, to give us the most exalted position in the kingdom. Friends, please hear this. Self-love never lies dormant. On the creeping vine of pride, it constantly reaches out with a with a fierce tenacity to promote itself. Self-love craves the spotlight. It's always running around to find where the spotlight is to get underneath it to take a bow. Self-love yearns for power and prestige. It thrives on applause. It longs to see its picture on an album cover. It longs to have its name on the marquee. Like Diotrephes of 3 John 9, who loves to have the preeminence, the Word of God says, self-love looks for the most exalted position and it will do anything to promote itself. By the way, this is hard to spot, I found in a church, at least at first, because the ones who tend to love themselves the most, who will eventually cause the most problems, are able to somehow hide in the shadows of clever manipulation. They will wear very often the veneer of humility. Their tongues will drip with flattery and Christianese. They're like those in 1 Timothy 5, verse 24, where the Apostle Paul described those the, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. But eventually, the lovers of self will be spotted. Their true colors will show. I have used the acrostic acid to describe them. They're angry, controlling, ignorant, and divisive. This is what you will see inevitably. And... It's just a matter of time. They will explode in anger. They will break fellowship. They will leave a church. They will leave a family. They will leave a marriage. And they will always leave a trail littered with those they've wounded and abused. So, James and John are convinced that they deserve to be the most exalted of all human beings. And, of course, Mommy agrees. That's nice to know. And in verse 22, Jesus answers and says to them, you do not know what you're asking for. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? In other words, are you willing to do the will of the Father? Can you suffer like me? Are you going to be willing to die? Are you going to endure the agony of the cross, the abandonment of the Father? Are you going to be the ones that will be the appeasement or the propitiation of divine wrath? Do you think that you can somehow bear the sins of all who will believe and be saved? It's interesting how suddenly Jesus shifts their focus from self-love to selfless love, isn't it? From self-promotion to self-sacrifice. He now redirects their attention to the issues of suffering and death. The very issues that he predicted that they ignored. And then blinded by visions of grandeur. Too self-absorbed to grasp the implications of what Jesus had just asked. They say in verse 22, we're able. You know, when you read that, everybody kind of gasps and says, You have got to be kidding me. But isn't it amazing how self-love blindly leads people to self-promotion? And thirdly, it leads to self-deception. You see, friends, that's the progression. And were it not for the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in the lives of James and John that, that, that eventually brought conviction and repentance through their hearts, it's hard to imagine where they would have ended up. By the way, this progression is always the mark of false teachers. If I can digress once again for a moment. In 1 Timothy 4, you can read in verses 1 through 2 how that false teachers will will apostatize. Uh, They will be uh, uh, motivated by deceitful spirits that will convince them of doctrines of demons. Uh, The text says that they are hypocritical liars, that they're seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Seared is uh, cauterizo. We get our word to cauterize from that. And it's the idea that they are so, I should say they become so deceived that they have no sensitivity to truth. They, They become spiritual sociopaths, butchering people with demonic lies, ripping churches apart taking people's money, destroying lives. And it doesn't faze them. It's like BTK. You've seen that on the news? I mean, this guy just talks about the hideous crimes that he committed, just kind of matter of fact. He has no conscience. Look for a moment very quickly at 2 Timothy chapter 3. You see the progression of self-love. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and tells us all, but realize this, 2 Timothy 3.1, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Difficult literally means perilous or savage times. By the way, that that term was used to describe uh, the demon-possessed man in Matthew 8. Realize that these savage times will come. Now, here's why. And by, uh, let, let me back up one more thing. The word times here is the idea of, of the accumulation of deceptive epochs. In other words, it's the idea that there is going to be a time when there's going to be layer after layer after layer after layer after layer of deception to the point where people don't even know the truth. They can read some of this garbage that's out there and just think it's absolutely great. That's what he's talking about here. 
And isn't it interesting? You ask the average person today, what is a Christian? And if you got 100 people, you're going to get 114 different answers. Well, here's why. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of self. There's where it all flows from. And then here's what follows. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, um, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then look at verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. Literally the idea, you need to run from these type of people. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, friends, James and John were blinded by their own pride. And we see the consequences of that in their self-love and their self-promotion and their self-deception. In verse 23, Jesus said to them, my cup you shall drink. You want to be exalted, then I'll give you the opportunity. In essence, is what he's saying. And eventually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not their own, they would suffer though not at the level of Christ. In fact, James was the first apostle to be martyred. We read in Acts 12 too. Herod Agrippa, you will recall, put him to death by the sword. And John was later brutally exiled on the Isle of Patmos, as we read in Revelation 1.9. So Jesus, in verse 23, goes on to say, But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You see, folks, again, the Father is the one that is sovereign over all aspects of salvation. As we learned last week in 2 Timothy 1.9, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. Ephesians 2.10, we read that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, beloved, real practically, trying to achieve special status in the kingdom of God is as foolish as it is sinful. All positions of service have been, according to verse 23, as Jesus said, prepared. Prepared by the Father. Prepared, by the way, means to be put in readiness to function in a God-ordained way. Folks, if I can make this real practical to you, we need to learn to serve faithfully wherever we're at and not try to climb some religious ladder. Bloom where you're planted. Tend to the depth of your ministry, I've always been told, and I agree with this. And let God worry about its breadth. It's so sad. I see, I see so many pastors, and I get this stuff in the mail and on emails weekly. Men that become obsessed with their own self-love and they want to promote themselves. And so they they all of a sudden get deceived by all of these seeker sensitive sensitive um, deceptions. And before you know it, they run off to all the seminars and then they come back and, you know, the whole church gets turned upside down. You know, they usually get rid of the pulpit because after all, we don't want to offend people and make them think that somehow this book 
is really what everything needs to do or that we all need to submit to it. They many times will get rid of the cross they'll, because that's offensive to, to, to seekers. And, and you know, we, we've got to get the music to sound as much like the world as possible so they feel comfortable there. And they, and they get off on all of this type of stuff. And then desperate now to, to have a larger following, they tend to disregard the flock that they've been given and they become consumed with breadth rather than depth of ministry. And the sermons become nothing more than cotton candy sermonettes. And they find their favorite entrepreneurial guru. And they then follow them. And sound doctrine gets replaced with ear-tickling silliness. And the gate of salvation is opened up so wide. And before you know it, the church is filled with tares. Beloved, that's never God's way. And it's fascinating as we look at this text. Whenever you try to elevate yourself, you're going to cause dissension in the body. Look at verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Now, I might hasten to add that I doubt if their indignance was a righteous indignation because we know that they also were guilty of self-love. They're also kind of in competition here. They're kind of ticked off because James and John got one up on them here. My goodness, can you believe? I mean, that guy has got, I mean, they got no pride. They bring mommy in to soften him up. Good grief. What do you mean you need to be on the right? What about me? That's what we got going on here. They're all deceived by selfish ambition. But folks, that always causes dissension in the church. And I, again, would submit to you that religious social climbers are to the body of Christ what a skunk is to a camp out. They tend to drive everybody away because they stink. And you know, we can all smell like that if we're not careful. Well, seeing the dissension and knowing the tragic outcome of self-love and, and the dangers of religious social climbers, we see finally self-sacrifice being presented here by Jesus, verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over and, and, they, and the, their great men exercise authority over them. By the way, lord it over is, the, is a concept in the original language of, of tyrannical oppression that cruel dictators would, would, would use. Uh, and certainly the disciples would understand that. They, they were aware of the pharaohs and of, of, of Caesar, of Herod, and so on. Egomaniacs that, that, that exploit and abuse other people to somehow satisfy their insatiable lust for power. But also he refers to great men, megaloi. It's the idea of, of the popular, distinguished, refined, charming, successful, uh, charismatic personalities that exercise authority, which, by the way, means literally to play the tyrant. You see, these people are not doing it through raw power, like the ones that lord it over people, but through winsome personalities, through popularity. Second Timothy 4, 3, we read, The time will come when they, people in the church, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. In other words, they're going to choose the winsome teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. 
And then what happens is those teachers take advantage of their gullibility. Rather than choosing men and submitting to men that are pastor teachers according to Ephesians 4, men that are ordained and chosen by God and gifted by God who will only preach His Word, they choose somebody that's going to tickle their ears. Well, Jesus says in verse 26, it is not so among you. In other words, this is never to be the character and the conduct of my disciples. But whoever wishes to become great, James and John, you want to be great? People, you want to be great in the kingdom? What what do you do? You shall be, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Here again, folks, we see the paradox of the Christian life. The first will be last, right? The last will be first. If you want to gain your life, you've got to be willing to what? You've got to be willing to lose it. You want to be great? Then become a servant. Become a slave. And of course, Jesus is our supreme example. In verse 28, we read, Just as the Son of Man, Jesus said, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Folks, if you want to be great in the kingdom, become like Christ. Who, although He existed in the form of God, Paul said in Philippians 2, He did not regard regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted Him, And bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Well, folks, I want to close this morning with three very practical ways to be considered great in the kingdom. Number one, first of all, recognize your true condition. You see, we've got to remember that there's nothing in us that deserves special attention. We're all sinners saved by grace. Jesus has already said in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4, that we, we need to humble ourselves as a child. And if so, these are the greatest in the kingdom. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Literally, let him renounce himself, abandon himself, say no to himself. That's where we find joy and blessing. All of the things that the false teachers promise now by going through the wrong gate are available to us in various ways and certainly ultimately in heaven. But those things are available only when we enter through the narrow gate of self-denial, not the broad gate of self-fulfillment and self-love. We need to have the attitude of Peter, one that he had toward Jesus after Jesus had performed the miracle. Remember when they caught all the fish there in Luke 5? At that point, in verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw that, He fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, folks, that is the opposite of the cult of selfism. Augustine said it so well in his classical work, The City of God, and I quote, Two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories itself. The latter, in the Lord. Isaac Watts 
summarized this so perfectly in his great hymn back in the early 1700s. He said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Folks, this is what it means to have an attitude that humbles ourselves before the Lord. In Isaiah 66, the Lord talks to us and he, he says that the heaven, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, our footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place that I could find rest? My hands made all these things. I called all these things into being. In other words, what can you possibly do to impress me? And then he answers his question and he says, but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So, beloved, we first must recognize our true condition, but secondly, we must be willing to sacrificially serve in obscurity. In Acts 20, we read of Paul serving in obscurity. And in suffering in Ephesus, and there in verse 19, we read that he served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And he goes on to say, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Again, folks, real practically, learn to be content with where God has stationed you. Don't look for a more prominent position. If he brings that along, fine. If he doesn't, fine. Remember Isaiah, who stood in the presence of God's glory, in the presence of His holiness, and he said, Woe is me! I am undone! I am a man of unclean lips! And in the course of that conversation, the Lord says, Whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, Here I am, send me! And the Lord said, I want you to go and tell this people who I am, but they're not going to listen to you. And eventually, Isaiah said, as we would all say, Lord, how long am I supposed to do this? And God, in essence, says, until judgment comes. Yet in verse 13, he says, there will be a tenth portion in it. There will be a holy seed. There will always be a remnant. The point is, folks, don't measure your ministry by numbers. I mean, all through Scripture, we see God calling his people to be faithful. And He will take care of the increase. And the final thing, not only should we recognize our true condition and secondly be willing to sacrificially serve in obscurity, but finally, folks, and please hear this, be willing to be hated for Christ's sake. You see, this is diametrically opposed to the modern mindset. Discover the champion in you. Jesus didn't say, come unto me, all you who have poor self-esteem and deserve a new Mercedes and a more successful career. He did not say, if any man comes after me, let him love himself and take up his credit card and follow me. And get ready, by the way, to pack them into the stadiums because they're going to love the message of the cross. Folks, that's not what Jesus taught but rather we are to deny ourselves and be willing to take up a cross, meaning to follow Him even if it leads us to our death. 
In fact, the Lord said in Matthew 10 and verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And in verse 22, he says, And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And friends, as we continue to take a stand for truth, to take a stand for Christ, persecution will mount. The Lord has made that clear in His Word. And it's wonderful to know that Peter learned this. I've got to add this in closing. Again, Peter served faithfully for 40 years, knowing that he was going to be crucified as the Lord had predicted. And in 1 Peter 5.10, he says, After you had suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Beloved, this is the great hope that we have. You see, our joy comes in the morning. I mean, we have great joy now. I have a wonderful wife that loves me, a wonderful family. I've got health. I've got more than I need. We all have that at some level. And certainly we all suffer in some ways, but folks, all of this is going to pale into utter insignificance compared to the glory that awaits us. Don't look for the glory now. We live in a fallen world. Get rid of your self-love. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Dear friends, the night is almost over. The veil of this life will soon be lifted to the next life. And may we all serve Him in humility until we see Him face to face. And for those of you that are within the sound of my voice that may not know Christ, I plead with you today. Won't you go to Him and confess your sin to Him? And He will wash you and make you whiter than snow. Oh, that the Spirit of God might give you true repentance and true faith this day. Let's pray together. Father, we glory in Your Word and we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, it will, it will indeed bear much fruit in all of those who are united to You in faith. And Lord, I plead with You as always as Your servant. Won't You please, by Your mercy and Your grace, bring conviction to those who do not know You as Savior, who have never submitted to You as Lord. Lord, may we all get rid of our love for self and replace it with selfless love. A love that is rooted in our Lord and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.